Um, we are on the tail end of this series. We started this series in, um, right after Easter, and we've been going through the letters of the Apostle John. So it's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and really we spent the majority of the series in 1 John. So since Easter, we've been in 1 John. We wrapped that up uh, last week. Uh, Pastor JP wrapped that up, and then today I'm going to step into 2 John. I'm going to do one message on 2 John. Next week, we're going to do one message on 3 John, and then we'll, we will be on to kind of the next thing as summer comes to an end. Now, one thing you're going to notice in this passage, if you've been with us uh, for a while in the series, is John repeats a lot of things in this passage that, we, that, he, that he gets in 1 John. So it's very obvious that the tone is very similar. He's writing about, there's a very similar context and situation going on in there. And I want to just say this to you. I'm not going to dive into all of those things because we've done 15 weeks kind of talking about each one individually. But what I am going to do for you just as a resource is on our website uh, for, this, for this sermon, I'm going to put the entire thing, the entire second John in there. And then for every line that we covered in another place, I'm going to just link to you, link, give you a link to that sermon. So like John talks about Antichrist in this one, in this, in this. I'm not going to talk about Antichrist today, but we did a whole message on that. He talks about keeping the commandments. We did a whole message on keeping the commandments. Uh, he talks about, about not losing what we worked for. We did a whole message on that a couple weeks ago. So we're just going to share that with you online that way, and hopefully that kind of helps us focus today on the things that he, that he, that are kind of fresh in this passage that he didn't cover uh, in the other one. Uh, and, but that'll give you a chance to go back if you want to. So let's just read this together. This is the entire book of 2 John. So let's just read it together. 2 John says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know me. Or I'm sorry, also all who know the truth and who know me. No, not also I, but also all who know the truth. Because the truth, uh, because, of the, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. Verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the, is the deceiver and is the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use pen and ink. Instead, I hope to come and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Jesus we just thank you so much for all you're doing in this place today, Father God. We thank you for uh, Caleb that we're able to dedicate to you this morning, Father God. We thank you for what you're doing in his life, Father God, and the plans you have for him. We thank you for what you're doing in our community, Lord, through this summer and through the missions teams and through the backpack giveaway and through the, just all of the things, the ways that we've tried to just be your hands and feet, Lord, practically for people. God, we thank you for the doors you've opened. 
And right now, Father God, we just pray for everybody in this room, Lord, that you would speak to hearts. Father God, that you would speak through me today, Lord, that everything that you would have me to say, I would say that. And that would be the only thing I say, Father God. Let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth, Lord. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we just read an entire book of the Bible. It's like, it's crazy. It's like one of the shortest books of the Bible. We read the entire, entire thing. And as you're going to see even more clearly when we read 3 John next week, 2nd and 3rd John are very, very similar letters addressing a very, very similar issue. And I'm going to briefly share with you today a tiny bit about what that issue was, but I'm going to kind of really do something very different with today's message and with next week's message than what we've done with the rest of this series. So we're not going to like kind of go line by line and dig into every single part of this today. There are a couple things that are unique to Second John. Uh, that I am going to try to cover at least briefly today. And then what I'm actually going to do, believe it or not, is I'm actually going to spend the majority of our sermon on the closing remarks that we just read. I know that sounds a little bit weird, but, um, but I've told you this several times, and this is my conviction, and this is why I'm going to do it that way. Um, and I, at the beginning, I'm going to do a couple of like, Greek things, but then toward the end, it's going to get a lot more practical. But here's my conviction, and this is why I feel like we're, we're going to kind of hone in on that one place. Is I've, I've said this before, but it's very important to me when we read the Bible. That first of all, we understand who's John writing to, what's going on in that context of what he's writing to, so what is he trying to communicate to them in that setting? And I think that that's very important, and I think like scholarly and research-wise, those are things we need. But as a pastor and as a shepherd, I think even more importantly than that, as important as that is, is figuring out, God, what do you have in this passage for our community? And what can we apply in the most practical way right now that was in here to our context and what's going on right now? What can we take from here that will help us better serve the people that we live amongst and do life with? What, what will help take that to the next level? So I find that to be even more valuable. And, and as I read and reread and reread this passage, for whatever reason, that the last couple sentences are the ones that I believe we need the most right now. And where our church kind of is, as a, and, and the church in general is. Uh, so we're going to get to that in a few minutes, and we're going to park there. So please bear with me through a couple things before we get there, because that's going to be really important. But first, I want us to just explore this introduction, just briefly. John begins this letter by saying to the, or he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, so, so first thing he does is he introduces himself. He says, the elder, this is who I am, right? And th th this is very, it's likely he is not, describing his position in the church as an elder like the way that we would think it like it's not saying I'm on the board of the church that's not what he's saying here uh, mo most likely what he what he'd be referring to is he would be talking about somebody he, he is somebody who has experienced a lot who's a lot older and who's who by experience alone and through the course of his life he, by that alone he is qualified to speak into the per people's lives that he is writing uh, John it's it's most people believe that he was writing this letter from a place called Ephesus, uh, which is where, of course, Ephesians was written too. And the church of Ephesus, particularly when they would use the word elder, they, were, they, would, they typically used it referring to a person who had been directly discipled by one of the apostles. So if you were discipled by one of the apostles, they would call you, and you would be considered an elder in Ephesus. Now again, this is where he's writing from. Now John won up to even that because John was one of the apostles. So John was actually, he had the first-hand experience experience with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He lived life with Jesus. So he says, I am qualified to speak to you about what I'm going to speak to you about. And then he addresses the letter to the elect lady and her children, which has been all sorts of questions like, who the heck is this lady? 
And who are her children? Right? Everybody always wants to know, who is this? You, most people don't even read 2 John or 3 John. But if you actually read this epistle, you wonder, who is she? Why does she matter so much? Why is she even in the Bible? And there's all sorts of theories out there. There's a lot of discussion about there. Nobody can say for sure who she is, for sure. But the general consensus, and I'm going to show you why I agree with this. The general consensus is that the lady and her children, what he's writing to is he's actually writing to a specific church. And the, her children are the members of that church. Um, in, in the book of Ephesians, again, Paul, or John's writing it from Ephesus. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, John, or, uh, Paul writes about how Jesus, um, how the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. So language like that is very common in the Bible of, of, of the church being a bride, or the church being uh, the elect lady, whatever it might be. Uh, it's very common language when referring to the church. And I'm going to show you uh, the Greek for, for just a couple of minutes. I'm going to show you a couple of Greek things, and then I'm going to get into the really practical stuff. But the Greek words that John uses that we translate as elect lady is the word eklektos kuria. Okay? Eklektos kuria. Now, eklektos, is, it's not the same word as ecclesia, which is the word we have, which is the Greek word for church. Like when Jesus tells Peter, he says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. That's, that's, but it's not the same word, but it is a very similar word. The word ecclesia, the word we have for church, literally means to be called out of your home and into an assembly. So that's what the definition of church is, uh, like technically, is that you're called out of something and into something else. Now, ecletos, the word that John uses here, what, it, what that means is actually similar. That means you've been picked out or chosen for something. Okay, so that's what that word means. But then the word Korea is also a word that um, it can describe something similar to that too. A lot of people think it means church. Uh, in the Bible, it's only used in this one place, so it's kind of hard to tell exactly what it's saying. But the, the word lady does make a lot of sense there. But in many, many translations, in many languages... Uh, the word curia has been associated with or come to mean the church. Like, for instance, Martin Luther, uh, when he's describing all the different words for church, the German word for church, the, um, the Greek words, curia uh, is one of the words that he includes in there. And then, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, we have the Roman curia, which is the Roman Catholic government. Um, that's with a C. But it's the same concept. So, so that's just kind of a bit of a reason as to why elect lady very likely means uh, a church. And then you get the word children, and this is fascinating. The word children that John uses is the Greek word technon. And in the New Testament, technon does not necessarily mean a biological child or a, a physical child from a family. It can mean that. But what it often is used to describe is uh, the pupil of somebody or somebody who's understudying uh, a leader. Uh, and it's basically just used to describe somebody who's being taught something. It's, it's used to describe people whose character is being shaped by the leadership that they are under. Okay? And then the very last hint that we get uh, is the very end of first John, oh, Second John when he says, the very last line is, the children of your elect sister greet you. So unless there are two elect, elect ladies that, that he just happens to be talking to, two very specific will, women who have very specific children, it can most sensibly be concluded here that John is sending a greeting from one church, probably the church in Ephesus, to another church. We don't know which church that is. Okay, I say all that to say we're going to proceed under the assumption that John is writing to a church, just like he did in 1 John. Uh, and the issue that he's addressing is the same issue that he addresses in 3 John, and that's the issue of traveling ministers who are coming into these churches. And in 3 John, John he specifically says, hey, sometimes you guys need to, you need to um, welcome these ministers, 
You need to hear them out. You need to be hospitable to them. And you need to even support them. Because what the work they're doing matters. But here in 2 John, he issues a very important warning. He tells us you need to be careful about who you let into our church and who you allow to speak into your lives. What he tells us is that if somebody's coming with a message that is contrary to the gospel, as in they come and they say that Jesus isn't the Son of God, that Jesus didn't uh, die on the cross, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he says, do not show them any hospitality. Which sounds kind of brutal, but, but the reality is, as like a shepherd, right, the easiest way to protect the flock from falling prey to a false teacher would be to keep the false teacher away from the flock. And so he's just trying to do that as, the, as kind of a pastor giving guidance. He says, hey, be, be careful. And I'm going to focus a lot more next week on hosp- hospitality. Because you guys know me. I, 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 I am a huge fan of hospitality. I think it's one of the most important things that we can do. And it's very, very important. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this week. But I'm going to give you this definition. And I'm going to hone on it a lot more next week. But Bruce Molina gives this definition of hospitality. And I love it. He says, hospitality, which we should be showing people, is the process by which, uh, by means of which an outsider status is changed from stranger to guest. From stranger to guest. And quite frankly, when I read the Bible, I really believe in most instances this is the default of the church. The church must be this. The church must, we meet strangers and we don't treat them as if they're strangers. We treat them as if they're our guests. And, with that, and then we let see where that can develop and see if they can, you know, maybe they'll eventually become actually a part of our community. But we treat them with love and with respect and hospitality. Um, that's the initial response. Anybody who knows me, if you know me even a little bit, you know I believe we have an obligation to the stranger. I believe that we were all a stranger once, and I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is for everyone. And that we were put on this earth so that we could bring heaven to earth, so that we can share the good news with everyone. That is why we are here. But we have to be careful because what John says is when someone new comes into your life, when they come into the church, they come into the assembly, and they bring something new, to the community. It has to be tested. It has to be tested. We cannot just assume that because somebody is here that they come with our best interests at heart. That's what he's saying. He's saying not everybody, some people are actually out to disrupt the gospel. Some people are actually up to disturb it and to mess it up and to get in the way of it. And one thing that John uniquely and specifically says in this passage, in this letter to this church about what was going on for them was this very dire warning. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Which I find, I find that fascinating. So that you don't lose what we've all worked for. Like we've all together worked for something as a body, and yet you can miss out on it if you aren't careful. And then he goes on to, very, he goes on to specifically say how we could lose it. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. See, there is a difference, church, between accepting people for who they are and living life with people and showing people the way of Jesus, if nothing else, just by the way you live your life. Even if you're not shoving it down their throat, you just live amongst people and you, and you keep loving Jesus and you keep pursuing Jesus and you set that example for them. But that's a whole lot different than when somebody comes into your life and you welcome them, but slowly but surely their influence begins to erode the values that you have worked so hard to develop. 
and to create in your life. And slowly but surely, the person that they are begins to shape the person that you are. I mean, you guys have heard it said a thousand times, and every pastor in the world has ever said it. So they say, oh, you show me your friends and I will show you your future. You've got to be intentional with the people that you surround yourself with. But remember, John says this, he says, to the elect lady and her children, right, technos, technon, right, people whose character is being shaped by the leadership that they are under. And I need you to hear this, church, something is going to shape you. Something will shape you. If you're not intentional to place yourself in a place where you're shaped into who God wants you to be, you will unintentionally be shaped into something different. Now, here's where I want to park. And this is where I want to spend the rest of the message. I know it's kind of bizarre, but John ends this letter by saying this. He says, Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and to talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Now, John, John says, I don't want to write anymore using paper. I don't want to use any more of my ink. I need to save that. No, he, 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 he says, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I don't want to write anymore. Now, we don't know for sure what, um, what John wrote his letter on because we don't have the original letter, but the standard for writing material was like a sheet of papyrus, right? And, and one of these sheets of paper um, would basically be about an 8 by 10 sheet uh, that, was, that was made from this plant, and, it's, and the, about the size was about 8 by 10, so it's a little bit different than our paper, but it's very, very similar. And uh, it's believed that this is what John wrote on. Now, this is my Bible, 2 John and 3 John. And you can see it doesn't even really take up half of a page on a piece of paper when it's printed. But if, if you look at your Bibles, you notice that they're very small in length. But those who have studied these two ancient writings will tell you that both 2nd and the 3rd letters of John, basically, unless John wrote with like huge letters, they're the standard length of what would fit on one sheet of paper. So unless, again, he wrote on like just absolutely huge letters... This would all fit on one piece of paper, which is unlike most letters that we get in the Bible. Um, most of Paul's letters are longer than this. Even his short letters, normally they're longer than this. And this is the significance that I see in that as I, as I was thinking about this. John gave us the most content that he possibly could in the smallest form that he could. And then he ends by saying, I have a lot more to tell you than this. He very easily could have just got another piece of paper. That stuff's not very expensive. They could have gotten the paper. Uh, it would not have been strange to do that. Every other letter did that. But when he got to the bottom of the page, he says, my gosh, I have so much to tell you, but you know what? I need to tell it to you in person. This communicating from a distance, this gap that is between us, this watching from a distance, it's not enough. It's not working as well as this should be working. There's just too much to be done for me to just send a letter and then expect that whatever I say in the letter is going to get done. No, John says, I need to get to you. We need to be in community together. I need to get to you. We need to make sure that, that we change some things that I can actually be a part of it and live amongst you. And when that happens, when we're face-to-face, as, as the English Bible puts it, and we're going to talk about it in a second, when we're together and we're doing ministry together, then John says, my joy will be complete. Our joy will be complete. In fact, he uses a very particular phrase, and this is actually very fascinating. He says when we're face to face, that's the word we translate it, but it's, it's the improper translation. It's the Greek word stoma prostoma. 
It does not actually mean face-to-face literally, as creepy and weird as it sounds. It means mouth-to-mouth. John says, I've come to you, or I hope to come to you in person, so that we can talk mouth-to-mouth. That's what it says. And then our joy can be complete. He says the exact same thing at the end of 3 John. At the end of 3 John, uh, he says it like this. End of 3 John says, I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk mouth to mouth. Now that sounds a little bit strange to us, but the reason it's significant that he used that word in that is because he's actually drawing from very significant language in the Old Testament. In Numbers 12... Numbers 12 talks about how um, when God would speak to the prophets, he would usually speak to them in dreams. He would usually give them visions. It it was like there's almost like this aspect of like almost like this illusionary aspect to the way that he would communicate with the prophets. Like God wants to say something to them, but he's only willing to do it in a bit of an abstract way, in a bit of a way that will always leave them wondering, was that really God? Which is a very scary place to be when you're an Old Testament prophet because in the Old Testament, if you get a prophecy wrong, you'd be killed. But they always had that, like, they had, to, they had to really make sure it was right, and they were getting it from visions. They were getting it from dreams. But then this is what Numbers 12 says, and this is God talking. God says this about Moses. He says that Moses is the most faithful in my whole house. He's so faithful, and because he is faithful, God says, when I speak to Moses, I don't speak to him in riddles like I have to do to most people. I don't speak to him in visions like I have to do with the prophets. No, he says, I come right down to Moses, and I speak to him mouth to mouth. It even says, Moses beholds the form of the Lord. It's the words, uh, daver pepe. With him I speak, mouth to mouth. With him I am close. With him I have a firsthand experience. With him, he actually goes up to the mountain. It's not just something that he reads about or he sees a Facebook video about. (laughs) Yeah, right? Moses on Facebook. I'm sure there's probably like 15 fake accounts of Moses on Facebook. Um, Moses is the guy that actually goes up on the mountain, right? At Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments are given. Moses is like, all right, we're going to all go in here from God. And the people are like, we don't want to go. We don't want to see God like that. We're scared. You go. You get, the, you, get the, you get the message from God. Bring it back to us. You have the firsthand experience with God. You experience him, and you bring it back to us. You tell us. We don't want to go ourselves. So Moses goes up, and he has a personal experience with the living God. And John is pulling from that language when he tells the church that he's writing to, I am simply not content to write you a letter. I need to be right up in your face. I need to be right in front of you so I can transfer something into you that a letter just cannot do, that a podcast just cannot do, that a live stream just cannot do. So he's limiting his words to one page, and he's determined in his heart that I'm going to come in person. And when I do, and only when I do, that's when his joy will be complete. And this is, this is what I got out of that. And I just, this is kind of just to speak to you a little bit heart to heart today. Church, it's great to send a letter. It's great to connect with each other on Facebook. It's great to like each other's Instagram photos. But there comes a point when sending a letter or receiving a letter or staying home and not being in the mix of what God is actually doing. It's just not enough. We have got to be showing up in each other's lives. We have got to be working together for the kingdom and not sitting on the sidelines and watching a few people do the work that we are all meant to carry a part of. This thing called church, 
that we all are a part of, it only works when you and I all contribute. When we all work together and when we all move forward in the same direction of loving our community and showing our community the love of Jesus and what that looks like. Because the way that the world has been shifting right now, it is easier than ever to disconnect and yet still convince yourself that you're connected to people. You can hide behind a screen but not be in any real community with anybody. You can even attach yourself to a cause and not actually contribute to that cause. You can share something but not give to it, not show up, not be a part of it, and then think that you're actually a part of it when you're not. I mean, please still share stuff. It's better than nothing. But listen, think about this. Think about what Proverbs 18.1 says. Proverbs 18.1 says that whoever isolates himself seeks, he seeks his own desire. If you keep to yourself... You seek your own desire and you break out against all sound judgment. If you isolate yourself, guys, this is why people do this. I don't blame them. If you isolate yourself, you can spare your conscience of having to be weighed down by problems that come with being in a community with other broken people. If you don't see the needs of other people, you don't have to deal with the guilt that comes with the fact that you didn't help meet that need, even though you know that you could have. You can spare yourself of that. But you're robbing yourself of an experience that God intended to use you for. God works through broken people to heal broken people. And when you're a part of that type of work, guys, God does a real number on your heart too. And, and I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. So I know I need to be like very careful when I say things like about stuff like this because these are just observations. These are just me kind of standing back and looking at what's happening in our world. But I don't think it takes a doctor to know that it's a lot easier to hide behind a screen. It's a lot easier to put a filter on your reality. To watch from a distance. To not engage. The advancements that technology has made over the last several years, guys, they have been incredible leaps. But it has made it easier than ever to avoid anything that even remotely resembles a healthy relationship with another person. I know, at least for me, at least in, in my personal life, it has done me just as much harm as it has done me good. Yes, it's been resourceful to be able to share content and write content and post podcasts and do all that stuff. It's been very, very good. But you know what the problem is? is at the same time as that, it also gets my mind. I mindlessly let myself get sucked into these activities all the time that consume so much of my time that doing things that, quite frankly, do not even matter, not even a little bit. And every ounce of energy that I, do, that I spend on that is always at the expense of something that does matter. And low-key, and sort of unbeknownst to all of us, it's really just a wall that we're putting up. It's a barrier. It's a safety net to guard us and to distract us. But guys, here's the problem. The problem is this. What's going to happen when your world falls apart? Because it will at some point. And what's going to happen when your world falls apart and there's nobody there? And maybe you post about it on Facebook and you get 100 likes, you get 25 sad faces, you get a handful of comments of people telling you that they're praying for you or that they're thinking about you or that they're so sorry something happened to you. And those things are thoughtful and they may help a little bit, but honestly, guys, you cannot survive by Facebook likes alone. And the things that maybe when you're bored, they fuel you, like, like you post a cat picture or a cat video and then it gets likes and you're like, yeah, I'm popular. That's going to fall very, very, very short in the time of a tragedy. They're going to always fall short 
in times of tragedy. Because we are built for community. The Bible says it is not good that man should be alone. But guys, we have just simply got to use our time intentionally to be in community with one another. To spend time together. To eat meals with each other. To get into each other's houses. To go serve the Lord together. Because the bottom is going to fall out at some point. I know nobody wants to hear that, but it is a reality. And when it falls out on you, you're going to need somebody to catch you and to be there for you. Please hear me, guys. Hear this. I, know, I, I say this to people and they think that I'm just like an angry, grouchy pastor who just throws words around. But you need to hear this. People tell me all the time, I don't go to church. Or I don't need to go to church because I am the church. And people tell me that, and I look at them, and I say, no, you're not. You are not the church. I am not the church. The church, you, I understand the thinking, but it's wrong, because the church is not about what God is doing in the life of one person. That's called salvation. Salvation does not make you the church. Salvation makes you a Christian. The church is about what God is doing through a collective through a body, through a collection of diverse people that he brought together who need each other. The church is a group of people who, as Paul says in Galatians, they bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2, he says, you want to fulfill the law, that whole law that you all are so overwhelmed by? How about this? Bear one another's burdens. That's how you fulfill it. The church is how you do that. The church is a collection of people who, when they bring together all of the things that make each individual unique, It forms a reflection of the diversity that is God. And it's a demonstration of how much Jesus loves you to the whole world in whatever way they need to see it, showing different people the unending love of God in different ways. Because we're all different. Yet we're all reflecting the same message in a different way. And if you try to do it by yourself, which more and more people in our world are trying to do it by themselves, you are distorting it, you are getting it wrong, and you're, you're showing it off to people in a way that is not true, it is not accurate, and it is harmful to the gospel. Ecclesiastes 4.10, the second half of it says this. It says, someone who falls when they're all alone, they're in real trouble. I know this is not something that churches talk about very often anymore. Because what happens if you're disconnected from community? You're disconnected from the body of Christ. And then somebody comes into your life like the people that John warns us about in his short letter. And you don't really have any other influences in your life. There's wisdom in the multitude of counselors, as Proverbs says. But guess what? You don't have any of those because you haven't surrounded yourself with any. And then when you do let a voice in or somebody gets in there and you don't have any other voices from any other positive channels in your life, then no matter what that one voice is saying, you're going to justify it because you're going to think, well, at least somebody's talking to me. At least somebody's listening. At least somebody is there. So you let them in. And then suddenly the only voice in your entire life is one that is unraveling the gospel in your life. And so you fall. And there's nobody even around to know that you fell. And it can be very easy to blame the people who do not hear you when you fall. But the warning in the Bible, it is issued to the one who isolates. The one who chooses to stay distant. The one who thinks that it's easier to not let your heart to connect, but instead to just read about it. To just get a letter and to try to on your own process it and work it out. No community to bounce it off of. No way to really gauge what this looks like or means in your life. 
Man, I, I can just imagine John writing this letter, saying all this important stuff, and then getting to the end and realizing at the bottom, man, they're not going to even understand all this. It took us 17 weeks to sort through what he said in that first letter. He's, gonna, he's looking, he's like, I'm writing all this stuff, and it all matters, and it's all important, but they're not going to get it. I got to go to them. We got to work this out together. We got to be in community together. We got to bounce this off and talk about it and see what it means. Guys, the church of Jesus Christ, which ultimately is here for the mission of Jesus Christ, it also serves as a protection from the things that try to creep into our lives. And if we isolate ourselves and we hide our reality behind a filtered Facebook post, then ultimately we're going to lose what we worked for because we did not protect it. John says mouth to mouth. I want to talk to you mouth to mouth because it's a lot less creepy. We'll stick to face to face. Face to face. I had to show you that so I could show you numbers. But we need to be face to face. That's where community is cultivated. Over a shared meal together, that is where community is cultivated. Over a cup of coffee, over showing up when this baby is born, over showing up when somebody's sick, bringing them a meal, over mourning with somebody, crying with somebody when they've lost something or someone. That is where community is cultivated. Helping somebody with their problem, helping somebody with a project, helping somebody with their house, watching somebody's kids, doing something to bless somebody else, that is where community is cultivated. Over an outreach where we help give our entire community and all their children backpacks or haircuts or an eye exam, that is where community is cultivated. Guys, these are the things that feed people's destiny because your life is not meant to only be about yourself. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ making all things new in our world. I, I shared this with you last week. It was, one of the, it was one of the best testimonies to our church I've ever heard. I could not, last week was, I was on top of the world. I felt like it was the best thing that God had ever done through us. And we're, we're so grateful for what he did. But at the backpack giveaway, all I kept hearing, I kept talking to these different people, people were serving, people we were loving, we were talking to different churches who were coming, and they saw the unity in the churches, and they saw the unity of our church, and they saw all the Courage shirt shirts, and they saw the backpack giveaway, and just thousand people come there, and they all just kept saying, I've never seen anything like this before. And I had neither. But do you think I could have done that alone? You think Don could have done that alone? Do you think Austin or Sarah could have done that alone? Do you think Emily could have done that while she's playing piano and yet planned that entire event? She did a lot. But she can't do it alone. If It takes everybody, guys. It takes all of us going up on the mountain and seeing for ourselves what God is capable of when his church comes together. And when all of us are involved... Not only are we protecting ourselves by keeping ourselves around other people who love Jesus and around other people who are looking out for us, but only together does that mission, the mission of the church, actually move forward in our community. Truthfully, I don't want to hear any more stories of defeat. I mean, I, I, I want to hear them to empathize. I want to cry with those who cry. I want to mourn with those who mourn. But I also want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And I want to hear more of those stories. I want to start seeing people win in life. I'm sick of my own stories of defeat. I know that God has more for us 
than that. I'm sick of anxiety. I'm sick of worry. I'm sick of stress. I'm sick of loneliness being a common denominator in our entire city. It needs to end. And the church absolutely has a role to play in that, guys, because we have the gospel. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he died so that you can live. That he lived a perfect life, even though I didn't live a perfect life and you didn't live a perfect life. And yet he bore the weight of our sins on a cross so that we could have eternity with him. Because that is what love is. Live perfect died for our imperfections. Guys, he gave up his life so that you can have yours, and he didn't just do it so that you can just do whatever you want all the time. He did it so that we can bring heaven to earth, so that we can bring Jesus to our community, and we can help more people, so that we can live lives full of mercy and full of grace toward other people, so that we can live full lives with people that are full of people, that are full of joy. Because look to the cross of Jesus Christ this morning if something is stolen, your joy. And I know, guys, I'm telling you, I promise you, it can be found again in Jesus. The reason that I believe so much in the church is because the church is the bride of Christ. Yesterday was our 11-year wedding anniversary, so I'm thinking a lot about my wife and about my bride and about our wedding vows. And what, do you, what does it mean you are the one and you are the only and there is never going to be anybody else? And if we really are the bride of Christ, then that means there is never going to be anybody else, which means if this doesn't work, there is nothing else. There is no plan B. We are the bride. We are the one that he chose to change the world. And if we don't do it, nobody will. It's his only plan. And I know the church has let a lot of you down. I know the church has let a lot of people down. I know I've let a lot of people down over the years. I know that we've not always lived up to our expectations, to the expectations that maybe you've had on us. I get it. I know it's flawed. I know it's broken. And yet I still believe that it is the only hope for the world. And it becomes more powerful when you become a part of it. Say that again. The church is more powerful because you are a part of it. So this week, let's spend time with people. Let's be in community with people. Let's live life face to face with people. Maybe not mouth to mouth, but face to face with people.